This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, a cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. So welcome to our podcast um, on the medical treatment of functional mitral regurgitation. And with me today, of course, um, world expert in mitral regurgitation, uh, Dr. Mustafa Ahmed, director of the interventional and structural program at UAB. Also, we have world expert in heart failure, you know, heart failure specialist in, in South Carolina, Dr. Jason Guichard uh, with uh, Prisma Health. Um, and uh, welcome today to our podcast. Um, I think it's going to be a very interesting topic. Of course, we we know that mitral insufficiency is a very prevalent disease. Uh, we know that mitral regurgitation or incompetence of the mitral valve is among the most prevalent form of valvular heart disease uh, with over 4 million patients afflicted by this condition here in the US. So it's very, very prevalent. We've had several podcasts on mitral regurgitation. Um, Dr. Ahmed did a wonderful one on mitral regurgitation uh, by itself on the mitral clip. Uh, we've had Dr. Lewis, who's had a surgical correction of mitral regurgitation. And today we're going to focus on the functional mitral regurgitation, which is, as you know, the mitral apparatus has five main components. We have the mitral annulus, we have the mitral valve itself, and the mitral cordy. Uh, the cordy of the mitral valve, there's about, you know, maybe 24 of them, which attach the leaflet to the uh, papillary muscle. So today we're going to focus on this papillary muscle and the myocardial wall, as well as to some extent the mitral annulus, and not so much on the mitral valve itself. So what can affect the function of the mitral valve? We know that ischemic heart disease is, is a very prevalent problem. We have about uh, 800,000 patients that suffer myocardial infarction every year, with 20 to 25% of them that develop significant mitral regurgitation. So Mustafa, I'll start with you. And uh, if you could explain to us what happens in a patient uh, with ischemic heart disease that has suffered a myocardial infarction, what happens to the mitral valve uh, and depending on the location of the myocardial infarction, how do you treat this patient? And uh, what is your medical management? So myocardial infarction being a heart attack and when a heart attack happens, it mainly affects the walls of the heart. So, you know, there's three main blood vessels which supply the myocardium, which is the muscle of the heart through these vessels known as epicardial blood vessels. And you've all heard of the one called the Widowmaker, which LED, which runs down the front of the heart. And there's another one on the left-hand side called the circumflex, or usually on the left-hand side, which supplies the side wall of the heart on the left, and then you have the right artery, which supplies the blood to the right side of the heart. And when someone has a heart attack, um, typically one of those arteries has a major blockage in them, which leads to the blood supply going down. And when that blood supply goes down, the wall of the heart, which is being supplied, also goes down. So if you were to take a live picture and be looking at the movement, whereas usually all of the walls of the heart would be moving in concert, you'd see all the walls with the blood supply okay moving, but you'd see the wall with um, 
the, blo the blockage or the impairment to blood supply, you would see that actually stop moving. And that's one of the first signs of a heart attack. Actually, probably the first sign of a heart attack is to pick up what we call a wall motion abnormality. And when a heart attack completes, so let's just say, as in many heart attacks, where you can't get there in the first minute and be able to fix that, the wall can die. So what was a wall which would move and thicken and contribute to the overall pumping of the heart, that wall now becomes hard, it doesn't thicken, and the shape changes. So imagine you had a circle, and one quarter of the circumference of the circle, the wall of it suddenly dies off, that may become straight and might start ballooning out, whereas the rest of the circle may maintain shape. But interestingly, that process over time affects all of the walls of the heart in a process known as remodeling. Now, this is really important in mitral valve disease because the mitral valve is an extraordinarily complex structure. Now, I often compare it to a parachute, which is where you have the mitral valve, which would be the parachute itself. And then you'll have these just string upon string upon string coming down to a central structure, which would be the person. Uh, in, the, in the heart, imagine there were two people, which the parachute went down to. Uh, they're called the papillary muscles. So it's all these strings are coming down off the mitral valve and attaching to these muscles. And those muscles attach to the wall of the heart. So in the heart's normal shape, everything looks great. But imagine you had that parachute coming down, all these strings coming down, hitting these papillary muscles. And one of the papillary muscles stopped working because the wall it was attached to suddenly balloons out. That's going to pull on those strings and distort the parachute. And it's very sim similar with the mitral valve. And that's one of the ways in which ischemic heart disease, by distorting what we call the mitral apparatus and leading to tethering or other alterations or deformations in the mitral valve complex, means that the valve does not do its job anymore, which is meet in the middle and stop blood going backwards. Now that process of remodeling can lead to the heart itself as a whole getting bigger. And once the heart gets bigger, that's another reason why the valve itself may not meet in the middle and will lead to something called a coaptation gap, which whether due to it being pulled or being, or the whole structure enlarging leads to a leak. And very rarely, but possibly, the heart attack is, is uh, in a pattern which leads to that papillary muscle, which all the strings are attached, you're just snapping. And as you can imagine, that would just be like cutting half the strings off a parachute. And that would lead to that one half of the valve, which that papillary muscle was supplying to becoming just so incompetent that it's a you know, medical emergency through which you know, you'd, you'd essentially undergo the physiologic process of drowning in short order. And so that remodeling, heart size, submitral apparatus and complex, and factors such as those are what in ischemic heart disease, so blood supply issues, lead to the mitral valve becoming incompetent. So this patient presents, of course, in a, um, in a situation of acute myocardial infarction. You take the patient to the cath lab and um, you, know, you reopen the artery. In this case, it was what we call an inferior myocardial infarction. And you, it's the right coronary artery that was completely occluded. You reopen, you stent, um, you follow this patient, 
and the patient still has a heart murmur. You do an echo and you find out that actually it has a severe you know, mitral insufficiency. Uh, you're still in the setting of the uh, myocardial infarction. You've treated medically. There's no other disease in the other coronaries. Uh, what do you do with this patient? You treat them medically or do you actually, uh, can you consider even a clip at that stage? So, you know, this is, a, this is an important question. Um, I can count on my hand, oh, actually both hands, the number of times we have taken someone in an acute acute infarction setting to the cath lab for a clip. This, this should be extraordinarily rare and reserved for situations where, such as papillary muscle rupture, which is technically difficult, or such severe regurgitation that you're requiring you know, ECMO or advanced support, or you just cannot get that patient through. And it, might, it may be the stopgap required if the team in its entirety feels that's the appropriate way to go, which is rare. So the next step, and I'm going to hand over to Jason in a minute, is get your patient um, over the initial heart attack, either with stents and medical treatment and optimization of fluid status and initiation of the correct medicines, which can prevent remodeling after a heart attack. And this is the most important process at that time. So they'd come to clinic, let's say a couple of weeks after the heart attack or a couple of months. Uh, and in some cases, actually, many years after the heart attack, and the murmur has been heard and they're sent to you for a clip. So the first thing is to accurately quantify the amount of mitral regurgitation. It is to accurately delineate the mechanism of the mitral regurgitation. It's to define the anatomy of the mitral valve leaflets, which will be important when determining strategy. But then getting them to a colleague that specializes in heart failure. And what we will often do is we'll go for the transesophageal echocardiogram, a test by which a camera is put down the throat. And now with beautiful 3D pictures, I mean, you can see that thing in its anatomic, you know, glory, the whole thing um, really nicely and helps you with the mechanism. And you can get an accurate with the transthoracic and components of the transesophageal, an accurate picture in the old days, it was just what we would call qualitative, where, hey, that leak looks bad. Uh, let's call that severe. And now it's become quantitative as well. So it's a mixture of, you know, what it looks like plus measurements that we take to really convince ourselves that that is truly severe. This is really important going forward because what many people forget is, you know, there's no trial, that, that a good trial that hasn't looked at those things without really taking the time to try and evaluate the degree of mitral regurgitation. And so doing that quantitative and qualitative assessment is important. And then some hemodynamic testing, such as a right heart catheterization, to look at the pressures. And so, Jason, um, I'm going to hand over to you because let's just say, you know, I take a patient, the, um, the wedge pressure is high with a V-wave suggestive of mitral regurgitation. You know, the filling pressures are a little high. And I've already got them on a beta blocker and let's say an ACE inhibitor, two, two very well-known and used medications uh, after myocardial infarction, uh, we found them to have severe mitral regurgitation due to you know, type 1 and type 3B, so that would be um, annular dilatation uh, and also leaflet restriction. And they are symptomatic in New York Heart Class 3, which means you know, any little bit of exertion 
they do, they're starting to notice effects on the quality of life. So uh, I'll send you a, a referral and a letter over asking for your assistance. And, and notice, notice, uh, importantly, the step here is not, hey, how do I schedule that patient for a clip? Yes, no, we um, pre- uh, love being here. Um, appreciate the invitation. Um, now that's a, a great question. So um, being a heart flare cardiologist, you know, medications are really kind of the cornerstone treatment for our patients. Um, we can do a lot of good for a lot of patients <clears throat> and actually help a lot of different aspects of their heart um, with just medications. Um, so when I see a patient referred for mitral regurgitation and, and ventral workup for either a surgical intervention or a percutaneous intervention for the mitral valve, you know, my job is to make sure that they are on the best medications possible um, in order to improve the heart function, um, improve the structure of the heart, and therefore um, potentially improve the mitral regurgitation. Um, I would say, actually, in my experience, we have probably you know, kind of quote unquote cured more um, mitral regurgitation than we've had to send off to either surgery or mitral clip. Um, and uh, we have a, a lot of tools in our tool belt in which to do that. So there are four medications that we use. Um, one is a, a beta blocker. Second um, class is a ACE Arbor Arni. Um, and specifically in that class, Entresto um, is, a, is a great medication for um, improving the remodeling of the heart. Next, next would be a mineralocorid receptor antagonists such as aldactone or um, um, aplerinone. And then the fourth is kind of a new class of medications we've talked about here um, in this group setting, which is the SGLT2 inhibitors, uh, specifically medications called impagliflozin or dapagliflozin. And one of the most important things that actually isn't a medicine, but actually a device um, is cardiac resynchronization therapy. So this is a, uh, a pacemaker or pacemaking function as part of an ICD um, that allows um, the heart to resynchronize electrically, um, which improves the mechanics of the heart um, and it actually can improve and cause positive remodeling for the heart as well. So again, just to summarize, we have four medications and one device um, therapy that can actually um, improve the structure and function of the heart. And in a lot of cases, to be honest, um, can improve, um, if not in some cases, completely resolve mitral regurgitation. Um, so we, in a stepwise you know, process over the course of a few months, you know, get patients on these four medications, you know, beta blocker, Entresto, um, aldactone, and one of the SGLT2 inhibitors, um, and then uh, reevaluate their ejection fraction to see if they um, would benefit from uh, either an ICD or CRT, cardiac resynchronization therapy, and get them to a specialist in cardiac resynchronization therapy because not all CRT is created equal. There's various different techniques um, various different leads. Um, the, the field of CRT is, um, you know, like a lot of fields in cardiology exploding, um, and very, uh, innovative and cutting edge. So just your typical LV lead, which is traditionally believed or traditionally used as part of CRT. Um, really there are other options and there are experts in this area, um, dealing with, you know, difficult CRT, um, cases, um, and, and novel techniques to be able to get patient CRT that otherwise wouldn't, um, so the combination of those five things um, let patients kind of, you know, sit and kind of marinate with those um, changes and then repeat the echo or um, TE, transesophageal echo, in a few months to see if their mitral regurgitation is still severe. Well, obviously, this is important because we've talked about um, a um, ischemic heart disease um, caused um, by a, a, acute myocardial infarction. 
that basically triggers um, remodeling of the left ventricle, the left ventricle becoming large. And as we know, there's ischemic heart disease and the ischemic heart disease. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you can have some situation where it's mostly papillary muscle dysfunction uh, versus the uh, ischemic heart disease that causes a dilated cardiomyopathy uh, where everything is large and the left ventricle is large, the function is reduced and diminished. Uh, you can have also the same situation in non-ischemic you know, dilated cardiomyopathy where the left ventricle is large and, and uh, the mitral valve just cannot close. I mean, it's not able to collapse. So if we look at the population of heart failure in the U.S., it's about six and a half million people, of which 50% will have significant mitral insufficiency. So it's a very large um, you know, patient population. Not everybody uh, needs a clip obviously, but uh, most everybody, uh, contrary to the primary degenerative mitral regurgitation in the functional mitral regurgitation, the first treatment is really medical therapy. And, and those four classes of medication, Jason, are so important. I mean, uh, not only they save lives, uh, they prevent hospitalization, but also like we're, I guess we're gonna discuss a little bit later on in the COAP trial, about 30% of the patient improve on their mitral insufficiency just on medical therapy. I mean, so this is very powerful. Yes, I would agree. Um, and, uh, you know, I've seen that myself. Um, so we, you know, give patients a lot of hope um, that, you know, there's a, a real possibility that they will be able to have to bypass surgery or some sort of percutaneous intervention. Um, obviously, we don't give false hope because it's not 100% of patients. But yes, um, these medications um, you know, if you're aggressive with them and in the right hands, um, can do a lot of good for patients. And, and we're not even talking about mitral regurgitation. We're just talking about heart failure in general, right? These medications improve longevity. Um, if you, most recent studies showing that if you get patients on all four classes, you can improve mortality by eight, by 80%, right? So almost a doubling of life expectancy for a disease that has a very poor um, life expectancy. So, um, these medications are great, you know, independent of mitral regurgitation. I know that's what we're talking about here, but just to kind of underscore, because it is one of the main things that I deal with on a daily basis, um, that in addition to CRT, um, you know, I mean, these are great uh, medications, great devices to not only improve longevity, improve quality of life, but also improve mitral regurgitation and then begin, which we'll get to in a second, begin to select out the patients that are probably going to be the best candidates for mitral clip or, or mitral valve surgery um, that would probably receive the most benefit. Really important to have heart failure specialists um, like Jason, as well as Barry Rayburn in our center and several heart failure specialists at UAB working with Mustafa. I didn't realize, but there's barely 500 heart failure specialists in the US. Um, so there's not you know, that many of you. And I think it really, it becomes very important in the management of uh, functional mitral insufficiency. Jason, I heard you were I heard you were ten heart specialists, heart failure specialists, and one person. Is this true? <laughs> the rumors are true. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so we come to this, and now let's say uh, Mustafa, that patient is still very symptomatic. I mean, Jason has done a good job, but it's taken about maybe six to eight weeks to really implement medical therapy, try to optimize according to guidelines. Uh, the patient needed a, 
you know, or also resynchronization, which a lot of times you have to wait three months until you have a diagnosis of heart failure. Now you've had optimal medical therapy, you have your resynchronization. We're now four or five months, you know, later, the patient is still symptomatic. Uh, what can we offer that patient, Mustafa? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, again, go on about just an important thing here, which is the patients sent for this are a select group of people or the patients that have ultimately had evidence demonstrating that they benefit from this are a select group of people. I do get concerned as my observation is a trend in the United States and maybe outside for increasing volume of the mitral valve clip, uh, potentially without the rigor that was applied to trials. And, you know, I say this on the basis of having seen many patients done and then sent uh, afterwards that where when looking back through the entry criteria, you do worry, you know, was the was the rigor that was applied to these same patients in trials, would that have led to a better result in this? And ultimately, that attention to detail is what's going to result in a long-term clip result. The clip, the result got from a clip, and then the result in six months and one year are two very different animals. And when you walk in, and it takes years to learn this, and having just having done a a you know very large amount of clip, um, now I will tell you when you look at a valve, you have to say to yourself, you know, you have to look at the patient, not the valve, and you have to ask yourself, what, where are we going to be in one year here? How do we maximize our chances of this person doing well? And that, that, those are the people that truly gain the benefit. We talked about deep, uh, ICD, but the resynchronization. You know, those are people with the wide QRSs. And interestingly, before COAPT happened, it wasn't like this. It wasn't, oh, has your patient with MR got an ICD, you know, a, bi a biventricular device? But now it's become fashionable. Also important to remember, not everyone got a biventricular device. Uh, about 35% of people, slightly higher in, in one of the arms, got a bioventricular device. And these are placed by, obviously, centers where people are good at doing this, had a good bioventricular result, and they, they did okay. And then the size of the ventricle, which I'm sure you'll kind of go into a little bit later. And medical therapy was just rigorously applied. But my, you know, one of the most missed but important statistics in the COAPT and other trials is, so I want you to imagine thousands of people were sent to centers that did this trial. And of those thousands of people, experts, experts that do mitral, deal with mitral regurgitation and teams that deal with them submitted patients to go into COAPT. So whereas the COAPT initial arms, you know, a few hundred people, 300 was in each group, got through, I think it was 900 or something that didn't get through despite being sent for screening by expert centers. This is beyond coming in, getting treatment, getting the device, blah, blah, blah. These are the people that got submitted to the to this committees for screening. And I'm familiar with this because I sit on a number of, you know, the, the decision-making boards for patients getting in the trials. And you still have to look at each case closely. This is after they've seen the, J the local Jason, the local version of myself, the local surgeon and the local heart team. Remember, more people did not get through the screening than got through the screening. That point cannot be said enough. That, that needs to be, you know, the mainstay and focus of a lot of these 
conversations. Uh, just to remind the teams out there that, that it's not an expectation that every patient sent to you with mitral regurgitation is going to benefit from CLIP. They, they actually probably may not. So patient selection is everything. And then we can kind of get, get beyond that. I think that that's a very important point and probably a subject that will, um, you know, be published in some form because this is an important, you know, what happened to the patient that uh, did not, that screened out, uh, you know, of the CLIP, you know, protocol, what happened to these patients? I mean, it's part of the reason why it took so long uh, to randomize patient in the COAP trial. It took about, what, four or five years, uh, but they were very, um, very, uh, specific, you know, and, and and it was very difficult to enroll a patient because you really had to meet the criteria. You, have, you, have you implemented all the medical therapy that the patient can tolerate? Have you done this? Have you done that? And it's only those patients, you know, that really had the maximal tolerated uh, guideline medical therapy. Of course, there was no SGLT2 inhibitors in those days. And Entresto, I think, was just starting or, or maybe had not you know, um, been on the market yet. So this was like ACE inhibitors or ARBs, beta blockers, and spironolactone, you know, type drugs. But they were very stringent in terms of, you know, entering patients uh, that really qualified. And, and do you want to go over these qualified? Who is a candidate for the co-op, for the mitral clip? Uh, because obviously the results were excellent, but it was a very well-defined patient population. Yeah, you know, there are, there are some patients also sent, I think an important uh, topic is revascularization. And so I still see um, a good number of patients where the, the additional revascularization, not to say that something that is a, you know, a dead artery and a dead wall should be opened up again, but a, a nuanced and detailed ischemic evaluation to ensure that there's no ongoing blood supply issues is important. Uh, you know, this... We have a nice collection of cases where people were sent with that, but then revascularization of a certain territory, particularly those often supplying the papillion muscles, interestingly, and the, and the mitral complex, those walls started moving, and the patient that was sent for a clip actually ended up going back with some kind of stent or occasionally a, a bypass procedure that actually improved the situation to where a clip was not needed. So that's another really important part of the, the process is, uh, you know, go through the medicines, go through the everything, go through... Um, the, the device, but also ensure that the revascularization is uh, adequate and being done completely before going ahead with the decision. So, you know, we'll take them. You know, the, the to become a, a candidate for the CLIP, and we've gone through many of this, this is in co-apt. And as you said, we really do need to, in the future, figure out what happened to the patients that couldn't get into that, because that's a really, really large proportion of patients that still don't do as well. Um, but so, you know, able to tolerate or have been put on maximal medical therapy as tolerated. And the ones with the wide QRS, so the electrical issues, those ones had the biventricular devices in place. Um, you know, as with any device, when you're doing a procedure on someone, you want to make sure that whoever you're doing the procedure on has a shot at a good long-term outcome, which is why we do not do these, you know, clips in people with, you know, advanced cancers, um, multiple conditions which are much more likely to take their life before mitral regurgitation. You know, the CLIP is not going to be a magic cure to multi-comorbid disease. And so looking at your patient in totality and saying, you know, what is our goal here? It's to get this person independent. 
and uh, improve quality of life, uh, stretching out to, to you know, the intermediate to long-term, not a short-term fix. And then functional status is important. Uh, even if you have the worst of mitral regurgitation, let's say in an 80-something-year-old, if your only thing you're doing in life is, is in a wheelchair or laying in a bed or in a nursing home, you're not going to help this person. Uh, you know, you kind of, we, we kind of all nod our heads and say, yeah, but I, we see this. And so this is another important thing. What are we trying to aim to do? What's the goal here? And it's got to be improved. And, and for patients to understand this, because the marginal valve clip, the interesting thing about the COAP study, as, as we all saw and everyone became very excited about, it was one of the, not just the first positive, you know, good news trials in valvular heart disease after the DAVA, but there was actually a survival advantage for patients having the clip. And there was a quality of life improvement, but a large decrease in rehospitalizations. In fact, the curves were you know, astounding to where you had to take a second look at this thing and be like, you know, am I even interpreting awesome. this right? <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, you remember, were you there? I was there, do you remember? No, I watched it actually on the internet, but it was really amazing. I mean, I saw the audience. Uh, you know, standing up, applauding, you know, after a presentation uh, from Greg, uh, Greg Stone was, was pretty remarkable, particularly remarkable that uh, you had the, the clip that was uh, the trial Mitra FR uh, that was, you know, just conducted and published a month before in France, which showed no advantages, you know, in mortality. And uh, when COAP was, um, was designed, uh, they didn't even, I mean, mortality was just a secondary endpoint. I mean, basically, they were, they thought they could really improve uh, quality of life and decrease hospitalization. And that was their primary endpoint. And they were very, very successful. But it turns out that, you know, uh, starting, uh, you know, 12 months into the trial, they started noticing a significant mortality advantage in those patients. Can you tell us more about that? I mean, and actually, mitral FR is a good indication. Maybe you could describe a little bit that trial because it tells us not everybody will benefit, you know, from a clip. The proof, you know, was in that in that study in France. Yeah, and so, you know, the, the let's look at the major differences between between those two trials, which is, you know, the curve was um, on paper a particularly well done rigorous trial, which took a long time to enroll into. And even the best of uh, machines, I'd call them, where you know your institution is really well rigged to be able to bring patients in, get them evaluated, get them to the right specialist. Even then, there were not there were not n large numbers of outlying centers that put a lot of patients into this. And I just tell you how hard it was to screen. Whereas Mitra FR was more of a real world trial, where patients were put in almost all comers, and they were treated not necessarily through the heart failure specialist, but treated by just making sure, and this is real world, so it's important, because as you just said with your statistic, it's not like everyone has access to heart failure specialists, or if they do, because of those statistics, it can take a year or six months to you know, get someone in with someone. Um, but the, whereas the co-op patients were put through the mill, as I would say, saw everyone, got massive attention to detail, were ticked every single box of appropriate therapy and protocol, and then went and got their clip from people that were truly expert uh, at, by this stage now and putting in the clip. The Mitra FR, the patients themselves, 
may or may not have gone to that you know, advanced heart failure specialist. There may or may not have been the ticking of every single box put in. The mitral regurgitation, the quantitative analysis was not as rigorous to make sure to, to be able to tell, okay, how severe is that? The patients themselves were sicker and the ventricles, the, the size of the heart was much larger in those patients. And so really what it's saying is a, a you know a sicker group of patients with la- larger ventricles that maybe hadn't been through the whole mill, as we just put it, but real world is the kind of patient that may present for a mitral valve clip. Those patients did not seem to benefit. And you know you can write uh, editorial after editorial about the differences between the two. But what we really need is the repeat of another trial that's similar. But until we get that, um, what we can probably safely draw the conclusions is, you know, the pe- people who have larger ventricles without necessarily a severe mitral regurgitation, and the patients that haven't been paid strict attention to in terms of their, you know, adherence to guideline-directed medical therapy to the max with access to electrophysiologists that can do even the hardest of bi cases, those patients may not benefit from the clip. And the population that we should concentrate on are, you know, truly severe mitral regurgitation, which is at least proportional to, or maybe even out of proportion to the degree of left ventricular dysfunction, who have demonstrated ability to do medical follow-up and compliance, and that the heart team in its entirety feel is a good, a good candidate. Those are the patients that, for now, that, you know, our center, for example, are saying, you know what, we think you would benefit from a mitral valve clip based on the evidence that we have. Whereas those patients, you know, larger ventricles, maybe burnt out, questionable degree of mitral regurgitation, compliance. Compliance is important because you can bring someone into hospital, give them medicines for three to four weeks, and then they come back six months later and they're not taking anything. Remember, the ventricle is going to enlarge in that time and your clip is going to become distorted and the degree of mitral regurgitation is going to worsen and it's disheartening for everyone, um, particularly the patient who may not got the result that they could have got. So all those things put together are probably the main differences between the two trials and hopefully are influencing selection of candidates. Well, I think it really brings the point that the selection is important, that medical therapy is important, and um, you know you have to have the severe bar with the left ventricle that is not really totally decompensated um, and it's important, you know, maybe uh, to intervene um, in the appropriate fashion in the appropriate patient. But what what kind of uh, there were there were also other differences uh, within the two trials. I mean, of course, the uh, this was the in the co-op trial. There were specialized centers in the United States. Uh, in France, there were several centers. It looks like the experience uh, in the U.S. You had less complication. Uh, you had maybe a little bit more clips being placed, and you had less residual leakage of the valve, you know, after the procedure. Uh, so less complication, better results. And is that what do you think just kind of, you know, helps uh, not only, um, you know, make the patient feel better, but improve on mortality? You know, there's, there's little doubt that the operator experience and the experience with the clip in general in the co-op era is much different to that in the Everest era. The Everest being the previous trial of the clip, which, you know, 
it's amazing that Everest trial did so well. That was 2010. I mean, think about it. The procedure is night and day different. Mm. Firstly, the operator experience. 100,000 clips have been put in the world. And the operator now, you know, the clip used to be years ago, gosh, 10 years ago. So, gosh, this scary procedure. We're putting this large catheter in the left atrium, punching through the heart, and then we can't really see what we're doing. And we're hopeful to see, but we may or may not. And I mean, totally different. Now it's go inside the, uh, the to do the clip, the heart failure special. Sorry, not the heart failure. Jason, I was about to give you the imaging credit there. The imaging um, specialist has already got a beautiful 3D picture of the valve, and they're already on the septum telling you where to go across. What used to take an hour can take minutes, you know, in experienced hands. The the placement of the clip and the orientation has become like clockwork now in knowing what to do next. The ability to visualize the valve is amazing. Do you remember 20 to 30 years ago, you know, looking at a fetal ultrasound for people having children? You see this little shadow and you're like, oh, yeah, there's the baby. Great. Now it's like a 3D reformat and you like want to talk to that child or something because you see something in its entirety. And so the same with the mitral valve. The mitral valve we're visualizing today is night and day different from the mitral valve of 10 years ago that we visualized. The credit for this can go to the explosion in technology um, that's allowed us to see that and made things easier. And we'll probably continue to improve and improve beyond that, as well as um, op, uh, you know operator competency. Um, people have now undergone fellowships where they're putting the valves in, the procedure numbers are increasing. And so all this, has no doubt influenced the, the results of that. Um, again, a case for specialist centers uh, of excellence for this, because that's when you can get all of the above players together working on the same page to ensure excellence in each one of those, you know, parts of the of the orchestra that it takes to do the clip. And so a- absolutely, the, uh, all those factors of uh, influence results. There's almost no doubt in that. The multidisciplinary approach really uh, needs to incorporate not only a heart failure specialist, but also a uh, echo imaging, you know, specialist, because it's, um, you know, that's what really kind of drives uh, the the accuracy as well as the efficacy of the technique of the mitral clip. Particularly important with the clip, important with you know the aortic valve as well. But in the clip, I can't imagine not being an imager or not having you know an imaging specialist. Uh, they're guiding, you know, your your um, your procedure. Yeah, it, I tell you, it's so important that in our structural heart fellowship that you know we train a few people each year to do that. They spend up to a third of their year just imaging, because if you're going to be good at this procedure, you need to be very good at imaging this procedure and be able to do it independently, and it allows better communication with the imager, also. So imaging is the absolute cornerstone of this. Um, and then just appropriateness of therapy, uh, you know, it's the question of a mitral valve program versus a clip program. You know, we don't talk about the clip program. We talk about the mitral valve program. When a patient comes in for mitral regurgitation, in our head is, okay, what is best for you? Not just we offer the clip. Is it to go, gosh, I can think of three or four patients we've sent for transplant in the last few months uh, that came in for a mitral valve clip. And the answer was, you're not on the best medicines, you're not on this, but hold on a second, you're a viable candidate for a transplant or a VAD. Um, you know, the only way we're going to do a clip on this is if your if VAD or heart failure specialist says, 
you know, can you do this first as a bridge or something? I'm sure you're going to talk about that in a short while, but can we do this as a bridge or something uh, to get there? But really, those patients benefit from going down that pathway. And the, um, that's just a striking example, though, of many patients that are sent for a clip because the patient has read about it and wants it would be better served with surgery. And I know we recently did a uh, did a talk on the on the robotic mitral valve uh, approach and minimally invasive approaches to mitral valve repair or other. There is a trial coming out, um, which we're starting to enroll in, called the Repair MR study. And that's going to answer the question of, can the clip be moved just beyond an inoperable and high-risk group into an intermediate or lower-risk group? And so, now, and so until the results of that trial come out, I think it should be prohibited for people to be using the mitral valve clip in lower or intermediate-risk settings where they haven't been fully assessed by a very competent mitral valve surgeon. And that last statement of competent mitral valve surgery, you know, in the United States, the average mitral valve surgeon historically has only done a few mitral valve surgeries a year. I mean, the decision on whether a mitral valve surgery can be done needs to be done by someone doing 100 of those a year, if possible, or 50, or something to where they can, they've, they've, they've repaired so many or replaced so many that they're making a very reasoned decision, not just, oh, I really don't do that. Maybe let's put a clip in there instead. And so that multidisciplinary team is absolutely everything in the mitral valve clip. And I think we should shy away from clip programs and, and have comprehensive mitral valve centers of excellence where, because those are the centers, ironically, despite having many more players in them, those are the centers that are going to get the best clip results. And, you know, I can talk, we can talk about uh, specifics of the procedure in these patients uh, whenever you want. Well, the, um, obviously the mitral clip sometimes is just part of the treatment. It's important to have a, a team that really looks at the patient comprehensively. I mean, if you look at the COAP trial, the two-year mortality uh, was 46% in medical you know, treated patients, which is quite high, you know, almost 50%. But in the clip, you know, it was still 29% at two years. So, you know, these are very sick patients and, um, and uh, you know, a clip can help, you know, uh, improve the symptoms improves mortality, but the mortality still remains high. And you have to have to have a center that will be able to take the patients to the next step, you know, which could be an LVAD in certain circumstances or, or maybe some other type of surgery. Well, it, it tells you heart failure is a, is a bad disease. Yeah, these are patients with severe, severe heart disease. Now, with the clip, you can eliminate mitral regurgitation or the leakage of the valve in about probably 70 to 80%, you know, with remaining with very minimal leak. But there are some patients there where you, you know, you still have a very large leak. These patients don't do very well. What kind of options do you have, uh, Mustafa, in these patients? So first of all, um, you know, the goal when going into a procedure should be to get the best result you can while remaining uh, safe to get those results. Um, and as you experience with this grows with the mitral valve clip, we found the ability to you know, eliminate or reduce mitral regurgitation significantly will improve also. That's just because it's still a technical procedure which requires experience. The goal initially, when the initial trials were done, was to say, can we get down to less than two mitral regurgitation? So let's say there's four grades. If you can get down from a grade of four, to a grade of two or less than two, those patients are still felt to derive some clinical benefit. 
we can go, we can get a bit more nuanced. Often in our procedures, we will, not always, but often we'll monitor the pressure inside the left chamber of the heart. So you may be, let's say, you know, most, most cases you want to go in and where it's safe and where it makes sense, you want to eliminate the mitral regurgitation. So get it down to a grade of, of, you know, mild to trace. In some cases, for anatomic purposes, you say, I may not be able to do that, or doing that may leave me with too high a gradient or too high a chance of clip entrapment, or the first clip was, you know, particularly technically hard. So do we really want to place the second one in this setting? In those situations, you know, many will use their hemodynamic guidance. So if you have the catheter in the left side and you're looking at the degree of leak and you've got the regurgitation down from four to two, but your hemodynamics, which means the pressure tracings just look night and day different, and you've given some medicine and tested the valve under different conditions, and it still looks night and day different, you could probably leave that procedure and say, you know what, we've got a good hemodynamic and we've got a good color reduction, although it's not nothing. This is what makes the most sense to give our patient the best benefit in this setting. And you could probably come out and leave some leak, but at the same time, you know, even though you've left some leak, you've still got a good reduction and what's felt a good, you know, good um, overall result in that setting. Another thing is you can live to fight another day. It's not always smart to make that overkill in one setting to prove a point. Um, and that's assuming you've done the best technical job you can on the first one. Sometimes it's watch, wait, see, and a small minority of patients may need to come back and get that done again. And so you do want to try and uh, reduce it as much as possible. However, there is not, I wouldn't say class one, but there is growing evidence that, you know, the better the job you can do with the clip, the more reduction regurgitation, the more the better hemodynamic result, the better the long-term result. What do you do if a, um, as you follow these patients, I mean, obviously with the clip, it's like an alfier stitch. I mean, you bring together, and, and you had a good podcast on this, on the mitral clip, everything you want to know. Uh, you bring together the uh, anterior leaflet and the posterior leaflet. Uh, there's not too much narrowing. Uh, but, you know, over the years, it forms uh, some fibrotic tissue over that area, Mustafa. And do you find, as you follow these patients, do they end up developing a narrowing or... or a stenosis of that mitral valve, or, or maybe if you didn't quite, you know, fix the the leakage, um, the the best you could, but it, it was still an important uh, leakage. The heart continues to enlarge. I mean, do you do you find that that the as the annulus continues to dilate and the left ventricle deteriorate, you, what do you do with the failures of these clips? So, the best data we have for this is from the you know the trials registries. Um, the result of the clip is generally felt to be durable when done in those settings where attention is paid to detail, like we talked about in the trials. And so actually, even a mildly tight valve over time is not expected to become tighter. We have that data going out 10 years almost now from the Everest trial. So if you leave a mildly elevated gradient, it's not expected to come back and be severe. And I've never actually seen that happen. I have seen, you know, uh, placement uh, uh, of overzealous clips and someone is sent for maybe assessment of mitral stenosis and you felt that probably happened in the index procedure itself and has led to X, Y, or Z. 
but ne- but not seen you know a mild gradient uh, become severe. No, we've not seen that over time, and that there's actually a, a paper on that that exact subject. But for, you know, further investigation is going to look at that over time. The same with the leak. Um, the results at baseline were felt to be durable out to two years, and in registries which we have, which look at slightly longer time than that, the results are felt to be durable beyond that. Now, having said that real-world practice, you do see this. We do see patients that are sent for either second opinion or worsening of clip or have had a clip done, whether it's at our center or somewhere else. You know, I mean, you, you'll come back and say, okay, there's that leak there. It's a minority of patients, but there definitely are patients where you could take them back if anatomically suitable, place another clip, and they'll do much better. So that's always an option to be able to do. There's some unfortunate cases um, where you know the clip is placed and the leak is still there, but you can't place another one because the initial clip is interacting with the structures in such a way that it's caused a distortion that can't be overcome with another clip because that first one is in the way. And in those cases, you either can just maximize medical therapy or do nothing. The There are a growing number, this is just anecdotally from what our centers experience of people sent over for an opinion on either a clip that's not got the best results or, you know, residual severe regurgitation. That's when you get the surgeon and you'd be surprised. Uh, we've got a number of those patients through surgery doing well and gone home. And then the question begs, what should have been the treatment in the first place? But it's not wrong in certain circumstances. Um, you know, we did that recent podcast with uh, Clifton Lewis, you know, master robotic surgeon. And we have, as, as, as recent as this week, you know, a few days ago, we had this conversation about someone that came in and who may have had, you know, Clifton Lewis is looking at and thinking, I can get you through surgery easily, probably. But that patient's saying, gosh, I just had two heart surgeries. Um, I don't want a third one. Um, do you think you can get a clip on? And we're looking, we're saying, well, you're not the highest risk in the whole world, but gosh, you've just had two heart surgeries. You've had bypass surgery too. And we'll have the conversation whereby, you know, we'll say, well, let's go ahead and try the clip in this setting. It's certainly not low, low risk. I mean, the patient's got many reasons not to have another surgery again. We do think we can get you through surgery, but if you replace the valve, that's a replacement. And that's what you're going to have to do. So we're going to go ahead and have a shot at repairing that valve the medical therapy is excellent. The candidate is excellent. Anatomically, we feel we can do a good job. But if we can't, we have a backup plan. And that's why when you're going into those technically difficult cases, you need to learn to read the valve just like you'd read anything. Once you get experience, you start seeing between the lines. And part of your option has got to be, okay, this is technically relatively difficult for X, Y, or Z reason, which is why... I tell patients, the surgeon is not necessarily seeing you because they're planning to operate on you. But that's the surgeon that in the event that this doesn't work or the really small event that there's a complication or the small event that over time that your leak gets worse, we want to know, not in, in a, you know, not in an emergent setting, but we want to know, we want the surgeon to have time to assess you, see you, and give an independent result. I never go to them and say, hey, I want to clip that patient. So by the way, can you can you write down that it's not like that? And it's, you you really want to know what their independent opinion is. In my opinion, you need to go in the clip knowing very well whether you have surgical backup or not, knowing very well whether there's surgical options or not, 
And then you can do your best job in the clip. You can then make your decision about whether to place a second clip with, you know, it's increased technicality and the potential problems that can ensue. You do that with confidence, knowing what your backup option is and having done it the right way. You never want to call your a surgeon from a mitral valve clip who isn't familiar with a patient and say, ooh, there's trouble. Can you get us out of that? I mean, no one's going to win in that situation. Your outcomes are going to be poor. You know, when you do go to a clip center and have a clip done, always worth asking, not just, hey, do you do the mitral valve clip? You know, do you do the clip? What are your surgical numbers? Are the surgeons good at doing mitral valve repair and mitral valve surgery over there? What's your inpatient survival? that mitral valve clip. How do your patients do it one month? At your mitral valve clip. How many patients of yours are alive at one year? And if a center doesn't know the answers to questions like that, you probably don't need to go there and, and have the clip done. I, I'll say that because I believe in it. I know that may not be a widely held opinion, but it's the only one that I really do think makes sense, which if you're going to do something, do it properly. And that includes having the, you know, the Jason Guichards, the Clifton Lewis's, the the myself counterpart uh, in those centers and, you know, the teams that are really looking at this and looking to improve year on year. And um, over time, technology is going to improve. We have, right now we have the mitral valve clip. And before I was, I was making a point of saying it's the operator experience that has improved because the clip itself, the technology stayed relatively the same. It's an amazing piece of technology, but you're like, hey, where's the mini version of this going to come out that's going to, you know, magically go across and fix this? It hasn't happened, but this last year has seen the release of the G4, the mitral valve clip, which is the, a large leap in technology. You can now do independent gripping, um, grasping. There's larger clips. There's wider clips. There's four selections for clip now, whereas they only used to be one. There's the ability to put a wider clip in and grasp more tissue. You know, the initial results of this have been remarkably encouraging, similar to those seen, if not slightly better than those seen in co-apt and other trials. And the future's looking bright as far as that goes. There's other technologies coming out onto the market, which are developing clip-like, uh, you know, technology, which should take this further. And there's now replacement technologies, because now what happens is you're doing the mitral valve clip, because that's our only option. Now, what's going to happen when you can say, okay, should I clip this? Should I replace this? Should I do an annuloplasty technology? Should we do a ventricular reshaping technology? And so this field is just going to explode and grow as years come by. It's another reason why when someone comes in and they're not the best clip candidate, I found in our center, we're saying, you're not the best clip candidate, but we've, got you, we've taken your name and details we're putting them in this list, and we're going to see you in three to six months. And for the first time now, when people come back in six months, there's an entirely new technology where we're saying, this is what you actually needed, and we're very glad we're waiting for those. That way people can have, you know, rather than the wrong thing at the wrong time, they can have the right thing at hopefully a time when they can still benefit from it. That's a very good point, and a lot of times we do have time in these patients, particularly on maximum medical therapy. Um, there's about 50 different companies now working on a new uh, prosthetic mitral valve, um, a lot of which uh, can be placed now, um, not surgically, but in, you know, in the hybrid room or in the cath lab, and a lot of development is occurring. Uh, and I guess if, if we look at patients with heart failure and very, very severe leakage of their mitral valve with a uh, left ventricular function that is reduced, but a left ventricular size that is 
still within, you know, is enlarged, but not too, too large. These are the patients that benefit, you know, from the CLIB. Uh, as compared to the patients that are very, very large uh, and decompensated left ventricle and just uh, mild to moderate uh, mitral insufficiency, uh, there they probably need more of the help of Jason and uh, maybe headed toward uh, LVAD or, or more into the transplant, don't you think, Jason? Yeah, these very sick patients, um, you know, it's always d difficult to know what to do with them. Um, I will say that uh, kind of in a recent article that was just actually just recently published, um, was actually looking at the mitroclipin secondary mitroregurgitation um, as a bridge to heart transplantation. So this was kind of reporting the one-year outcomes from the International MitroBridge Registry. Um, and the data there was actually quite interesting. Um, and I think, um, at least in the heart therapy world, um, you know, kind of talked to or addressed some of the things that we, you know, know to be true, that mitrogurgitation, um, you know, is a um, kind of a poor prognostic marker and can cause a lot of symptoms in patients. And this publication, you know, from as a bridge strategy, these patients, you know, 23.5% recovered sufficiently um, to come off the heart transplant list. You know, so these are patients who are clearly, you know, very sick, um, had severe MR, um, you know, in the, in the advanced heart failure world, you know, we really go the extra mile, so to speak, before we move on to transplant or LVAD, because both of those uh, modalities have their own issues. You know, it's often said that you're just kind of treating one problem for another. So we really exhaust all options in advanced therapy candidates, you know, whether it's medicines or devices, experimental or otherwise, in order to, you know, prevent the use of, you know, scarce research like a scarce resource like heart transplantation or a device that carries a, you know, significant um, morbidity in LVADs. Um, so this study, I think, may kind of shake up um, this whole, you know, mitra FR um, and co-apt kind of argument um, where, you know, almost 25% of patients, you know, improved enough to come off the list. And in addition to that, about 16%, it was 15.5%, improved enough to actually be eligible for transplant. So these are patients that were um, um, abridged to candidacy. So they were really not wet, not, you know, well enough and too sick to actually have either a VAD or a transplant, got mitroclip, and about 16% of those patients improved enough, you know, symptomatically and end organ function wise to actually um, be eligible for transplant or LVAD. So, you know, I think that we're just scratching the surface with mitroclip, um, you know, like with a lot of these technologies, um, you know, the technology advances quickly before we actually, um, you know, look at the outcomes and able to kind of decipher exactly the, the correct patient population. But I think that's starting to be uncovered now as the device has been around for a number of years. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, a lot of these patients in this study actually kind of fit the mitra FR mold. Um, and yet these patients, you know, had a pretty significant benefit, either improving enough to come off an advanced therapies list or, um, improving enough to be on the list. Um, so both are positive things. So Jason, um, you, I'm really glad you mentioned this study because um, so when, two questions for you. One is what's been the early reception in the heart community? And the second one is, do you think that the difference between FR and this is that these patients were, as an overall patient, potentially a candidate for a transplant, which means, and you know very well, I've learned a lot of this stuff, people like yourself, that's a whole different category to be able to be eligible for transplant or a VAD. I mean, that's like getting into co -opt. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? It's really a, 
a lot. Correct. Yeah. So I, um, you know, I think this just under, underscores um, the importance of medical therapy and optimization of medical therapy before moving on to mitroclips. I mean, you know, just like in COAP, you know, this is a very special patient population. And in this study um, that I referenced, you know, if they're being touched by a heart failure cardiologist and a transplant team, you know, you're almost guaranteed that these patients are going to be as optimized as possible. Because um, like I said previously, you know, we exhaust in the advanced heart failure world, we exhaust all options before moving on to um, VAT or LVAT or transplant, because, you know, those, both of those uh, modalities, although very important, they improve mortality and, and they're great, um, you know, and they, you know, are the gold standard for end-stage heart failure. You know, they carry significant um, issues, morbidity and mortality in some cases. Um, so, you know, I think in the heart failure world, you know, this paper, you know, just came out in one of our big journals, the International um, Society for Heart and Lung Transplantation, you know, their journal, the Journal for Heart and Lung Transplantation. Um, I think this is going to add another tool to the tool belt for us when maximizing medical therapy to where if patients still have severe MR um, and they are on medical therapy and devices, that sort of thing, you know, I think this is going to be the, the beginning, kind of the, the first paper to kind of signal that maybe MitraClip is going to be something that we offer patients with severe MR um, as a bridge to either get them better or as a bridge to get sick patients um, improved enough to be able to be candidates for transplant or LVAD. So I, I have a feeling, you know, this paper was just recently published. I have a feeling that this is going to be very well received in heart failure circles um, and is actually probably going to increase excitement um, around mitroclip and other mitral valve um, therapies um, for some of these very sick patients. Well, I think that will uh, wrap up our session. Uh, Jason uh, Gishara, thank you very much. Uh, Mustafa, uh, thank you again for your incredible input into um, the treatment, medical treatment of a functional mitral regurgitation. A very complex problem um, and uh, a problem of the heart muscle that really necessitate a multidisciplinary approach and um, uh, where medical therapy resynchronization and the clip can really play an important role in saving these patients. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate it. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.